0: Again, if you're new to Redeemer, it's, it's great to see you here. We are generally pretty casual, but on Easter Sunday, we like to spiff it up a little bit, right? But then I saw Matt this morning with his bow tie, and I thought, man, he is up in the game on all of us. So it uh, looks really, really sharp. Justin just read of Peter, who ran to the tomb marveled at what he saw. If you know the story of Peter, you know why he was running. Uh, Peter was a fisherman whom Jesus one day came along and said, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And Peter followed him. became apparently one of his faithful followers. Along the way, Peter would stumble here and there as Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary used to say, of Peter. And having nothing to say, Peter said. That was Peter, always popping off at the mouth. As Jesus went to the cross, as as that hour was coming, Jesus said of his disciples that they would all scatter. And Peter said, oh no, not, not me, Lord. Though all may fall away, I will stand strong and if you know the story Peter scattered just like the other 12 and then he followed at a distance and as Jesus interrogation began and as his suffering began Peter was confronted three times you're one of them no no I'm not you're one of those who follow Jesus no 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 not me Aren't you one of those followers of Jesus the Nazarene? I don't know him. Three times over, in the Lord's darkest hour, Peter denied knowing Christ. Saved his skin. But the Bible tells us he went away weeping and probably figured... Life is done. Oh, I'll keep on breathing. But I'm not so sure what will become of me. Peter went back to fishing. Went back to his old way of life. But then something happened. The one who suffered, the one who died, came back to life. Came back to life. And he appeared to Peter and to the twelve. But I think Peter was still... Rumbling about this in his own heart and soul. Yes, this is unbelievable, but what does it mean for for me? I denied him three times over in his darkest hour. And again, Peter went back to fishing. And then Jesus appeared to him on the shore and asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus asked him a third time, three denials, three questions. Peter, do you love me more than these? The Bible says that it, 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 it rumbled around in Peter's heart that Jesus would ask him a third time, Oh Lord, you know all things. You know That I love you. And to each of those responses, Jesus told him, Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Jesus was putting Peter, the one who failed him at his darkest hour, back in the game. Peter was not done, things were just getting started. Peter would become one of those faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus would spend a little more time with those disciples and then he would ascend back into heaven. And then he would pour forth his Spirit into the lives of his people and Peter would become the leader in the early church, proclaiming that Jesus Christ had died but that God had raised him from the dead and that salvation was found in him. Peter would press through persecution that none of us could ever imagine. And ultimately, he would follow Christ all the way until death. Under Nero's persecution, they're going to crucify Peter. Strong tradition tells us, in order not to be crucified like his master, he has to be crucified upside down. Peter would go all the way to a faithful death. Christ. I tell a bit of that story because I want us to look at a text in a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's toward the very end of your Bible. You can go to Revelation and just start working to the left and you'll run into 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, you can pull it up on your phone or device. If you don't have that, I'm going to put it up on the screen for you this morning mark prayed about it matt mentioned it whenever we come to easter we always talk about hope we always link the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to hope and i wanted us to look at one of these passages where this link is made explicit verse 3 4 and 5 peter writes blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ Like so many New Testament authors, Peter is writing to a suffering people. In verse six of this same chapter, he will write about them going through various trials. Later in chapter four, he will talk about the fiery ordeal that they are experiencing. You ever been through various trials? Ever been through a fiery ordeal? Of course you have. They're not electives, you know. When I kind of cool in school where you had to take these classes, but these others were electives. You could take them if you wanted to or not. Unfortunately, trials are required curriculum. We don't get to choose. We have to take this course. The hymn writers through the ages have known it, William Cooper wrote the great God moves in mysterious ways. What a great phrase. God moves in mysterious ways. We don't always understand what he's doing. We can't figure it out. The same hymn he would write, of the clouds ye so much dread. You see clouds that are coming and they're dark and they're foreboding. Sometimes life is like that. We can anticipate hardship coming our way. He he writes of trials that, that have a bitter taste. And boy, don't they. He writes of frowning providences. Providences, those are, God providentially brings things into our lives. And often, they're frowning providences. Spafford would write, an incredible hymn that we sing so often. He would sing of human experience, not only of times when peace like a river attendeth our way, but also what? When sorrows like sea billows roll. Or John Newton, in the most famous hymn, probably, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Dangers, toils, snares, sorrows like sea billows roll, frowning providences, bitter taste, God's mysterious ways. We all go through hard times. Sometimes they're physical, sickness, disease, chronic pain. Sometimes they're economic downturns out there that can have hard realities for us. Relational troubles, whether in our marriage or with our children or with friends. Natural disasters, we know all about those. Unmet expectations at home, unmet expectations at work, unmet expectations at church political uncertainty, death of those we love. That's what these Christians were experiencing. Various trials, fiery ordeals. And among many things, Peter writes this letter to steady them in the midst of that. To keep them strong when these harsh winds are blowing. To keep them, if you will, from careening down the river to a place of anger. A place of bitterness. A place of revenge. Worse, a place of what the Bible might call apostasy. Where we would just not... God, if this is what it means to follow you, then I'm out. If you can't take care of me any better than this, if this is the cost of discipleship, then I'm done. Peter doesn't want that. He didn't want it for his writers. God doesn't want it for us, and therefore, texts like this one are enshrined in the pages of Scripture for you and me to read and to to ponder, and this is at the very beginning of his letter, and in the midst of the trials and the hardships and the fiery ordeal which they were going through in the present moment, where Peter begins, is to remind God's people of future glory. He's going to encourage more out of them. He's going to call for more from them. But first thing he wants them to know, I know you're going through hard trials. I know you're going through fiery ordeals. But first thing, we have a living hope. And he speaks of the age to come. We'll look at it in detail in a minute. But before we do, a couple of preliminaries that I want you to look at number one preliminary is this little phrase here according to his great mercy Uh, peter is writing to god's people those who've come to put their faith in jesus christ whose sins are forgiven who belong to him and he writes and reminds them that they have been born again we have been born again according to his great mercy Mercy is God's goodness to those who are in misery and distress. The Bible paints a picture of you and me in our sin of misery and distress. We might not want to own up to it. Maybe some of you here aren't even aware of it, but the Bible paints a picture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. It paints a picture You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. And you were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Into that misery and into that distress comes God's mercy. Other words the Bible uses, grace, kindness, love. And here, not only mercy, but great mercy. It's just a good reminder. It's a good preliminary for us to remember that our salvation was not something that we earned. It's not something that we deserved. It's not because we were better than anybody else. It's not because we measured up. It's not because we jumped through the rungs. We climbed the ladder. For some unknown reason, in the will of God, in the sovereign will of God, he was merciful towards us. The second preliminary is Peter knows what to do with this. See those words, blessed be? What, is, what, do, what do sinners like you and me do with the great mercy of God. What does Peter do? Some of you guys in here, you know, we're big, we're tough, we're strong. We don't, you know, that adoration, worship, you know, that ain't none of us as tough as the fisherman Peter was. Ain't none of us more manly than that guy was. But what does he do with the great mercy of God? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He takes the mercy of God and he, he takes it up and he takes it all the way up into praise, into worship, into adoration, thanksgiving. Guys, I hope you sing. When we sing, and I, as I told the first service in here this morning, if you don't sing because you don't want the person in front of you to hear you singing, then join me on the front row. That's why I sit there. It's because I like to sing of what God has done for me. And I like to sing loud with all the gusto that I can manage. Why? Because according to His great mercy, He's caused me to be born again. Not because I was special was merciful. He was gracious. He was kind. He didn't have to save me, and he didn't have to save you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. So what do you do with it? Well, Newton said, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd just begun. Peter turned it to praise. Well, enough of that. Those who believe, Peter says, are saved to a living hope. See it? by His great mercies, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, hope in the New Testament is is not used like we use the word hope. You know, I hope it doesn't rain today. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but I hope that it doesn't. We use hope of, of, of things that we want to see but we're really uncertain of. The New Testament uses the word hope in a completely different way. It's assured expectation because God has made a promise. It's assured expectation. We have hope of what is to come. And it's not, maybe it'll come, maybe it won't. No, God has promised it, therefore we have hope. Assured expectation of what God has promised. And Peter says that this hope that we have is living. It could be that the idea is that it's ever growing as time goes on. That that our understanding and appreciation and our resting in this sure hope grows as we grow in the Lord. That could be it, I'm not so sure. It seems to me it kind of counteracts what we just said, that it's it's an assured expectation of what God has promised. Another idea is that it's genuine rather than dead and unable to deliver. I like that better. This is a living hope. It's not a dead hope that maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. No, God will deliver because God has promised. And it's tied to what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God's children have a promise of the age to come. We'll get there. Because Jesus Christ came. He died upon a cross to pay the penalty for what we had done. That's what we celebrated on Friday, Good Friday. The death of Jesus Christ upon the cross in our place and for our sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He lived and then he went to a cross to pay the penalty, not for what he had done, but for what we had done. As I like to say, when he died upon the cross, as scripture tells us, he said, It is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And, and, and he died. And I like to say at the resurrection, it's as if his heavenly father said, You bet it is finished. Arise, my son. And God raised him from the dead to live forevermore. And the great truth of Christianity and one of the marvels of who God is and what he does for us is when we are are united to Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again, guess what will happen to us? Though we die, we too shall rise. Because he died and rose, all who are united to him, though we die, we too shall rise and live forevermore. For some of y'all, maybe that's old news. For some of you, maybe you've never heard that before. You're going, wait, what you? If you? If you're a Christian, what's going to happen to you when you die? Here's what I believe the Scripture teaches. In that moment, your spirit will immediately go into the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And your body will be left there lifeless. And we'll do with your body what we do, and we'll put it into a casket, and we'll bury it about six feet under. And one day, according to Scripture, Jesus Christ is going to come back. And when he does, he's going to raise you, your body, from the dead. Believe it or not. Reunited with your spirit and you will be glorified. Paul would put it like this. He will transform the body of our humble estate. Anybody want to say amen to the body of our humble estate? (laughs) He will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory. We will be changed. We'll be transformed. Just as those women showed up on Sunday morning and the stone was rolled away and there was no body, one day somebody could show up at our gravesite and take a look and go, This living hope, this assured expectation, is because it's tied to, it's grounded in our Savior who died and rose again. That's why Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15 if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, our faith is in vain, our hope is gone. But because he has risen, all who are united to him shall too rise. It's a living hope. It's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now he's going to tell us a little bit more about it. To obtain an inheritance. I think the way verse 3 and 4 are connected, you might could start verse 4 with, that is, he's explaining more what this hope looks like. We've been born again to a living hope. That is, to obtain an inheritance. We're going to receive something one day from our Heavenly Father. Number one, it's imperishable. It's not subject to decay. It's unable to be worn out with a passage of time. Everything you and I own, everything you and I will own, is perishable. It is subject to decay. It, it will wear out with the passage of time. That's why Jesus warned us to be very, very careful about laying up for ourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And boy, do we hustle and bustle through life laying up treasures on earth. And Jesus said, be real careful. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Perishable Worn out with the passage of time. Just yesterday, my wife did it to me again. Hey, babe, come in here and look at this. That's when you get nervous, right? She pointed up to the ceiling, where apparently some something's getting through somewhere. Some water is leaking somewhere. That just brings joy to your heart, doesn't it? That my house is perishable. It's wearing out with the passage of time. Undefiled. This inheritance is imperishable and it's undefiled. It's unpolluted by sin. contains nothing unworthy of God's full approval. And it will not fade away. Again, unlike earthly wealth, it'll never wither. It'll never grow dim. It'll never lose its beauty or its glory. never become old, never become tired, will never fade away. You compare this to every earthly thing you may pursue yourself or every earthly thing you may inherit from a grandparent, a parent, an aunt, an uncle. It may be sentimental, yes, but lasting, no. One of the great things Tara and I inherited from her grandmother was a 1991 Oldsmobile station wagon. It was about as long as this room is wide. And we were young, married, we didn't have any kids. We flew down to Florida and we picked this sucker up and we bounced all the way back home to Arkansas. It was a great inheritance. Sentimental, maybe we sold it, paid off some debt. But lasting, never the stuff of this earth is here today and gone tomorrow. But not so all that we have to look forward to in heaven. We have a living hope. A sure expectation of an inheritance. And in a word, it's glorious. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. Peter goes on to say it's also sure. See that? Whoops. It's reserved in heaven for you. The scholars tell us that the verb tense here indicates that God has set it aside in heaven. It's reserved in heaven for you. He set it aside and it's waiting for you. It remains there. For the taking, it will never be denied his child. One writer said While the Christian adversaries might destroy all they have in this world, there is a reward that no force on earth can touch. This inheritance should give them hope in the darkest times. But not only is it reserved in heaven, But you, the child of God, are protected by the power of God. As one guy said, it's not much good to protect an inheritance if the heir is not going to be around to receive it. Well, God protects this inheritance. It's reserved in heaven for you. But that's not a whole lot of good if if I don't make it. But he says of his children that they are protected by the power of God. Two ways to take this. One of them I, I like better. One is that we are part, those of us who believe, we are a part of the family of God. And there, there is no escaping. We're not going to be lost. Right? We're, we're protected by the power of God. The other image is... Of someone guarding you along the path of difficulty, of hardship, and taking you safely to the destination. I like that. Does God lose any of his children? No way. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, Paul says. We are protected by the power of God. Maybe, maybe this is what Newton had in mind when he said, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. I may go through many more dangers, trials, toils, and snares, but I'm protected. So this living hope, this inheritance which we are going to receive is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us. And as his children, we are protected until we receive it. What exactly is it, Mitch? I don't know. But it sure sounds good. We say that almost every Friday morning at our men's Bible study. We're studying the book of Revelation, right? And in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of things. You just don't know what it means. Receive a white stone with your name written on it. What does that mean? I don't know, but it sure sounds good. We're going to rule the nations with Christ. What exactly does that mean? I don't know, but it sure sounds good. We're going to receive an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. What is it? I don't know. But it sure sounds good. Peter, to these suffering Christians, these various trials, the fiery ordeals, he will say more to them, but the first thing he wants to say to them, you've got hope. Perishable, undefiled, will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you and you're protected till then. And it's grounded in that Jesus Christ died and rose again. He's alive. and Connected to him. All is well. If you're a child of God, the way you might respond to this is as Peter goes on in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Two times, verse 6, greatly rejoice. Verse 8, greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. If you're a child of God, you know what that's about. You know that, that God is great and that you are a sinner You know that you couldn't do anything about it. You know, though, God acted in great mercy and sent Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to live for you and die for you and rise for you. And that by being united to Him, your sins are forgiven. You're adopted into His family. You receive His Holy Spirit, and you have the promises of God of the age to come. That brings joy to your heart. Great joy, inexpressible and full of glory. How do you even talk about it? But maybe you're here this morning and if I ask, do you have this living hope yourself? You might say, I don't know. One thing that is true Clearly, true from the pages of Scripture is this because Jesus Christ came and did what he did, lived a holy life, died upon the cross to pay the penalty for sins, rose from the dead. Because he did that, it does not therefore mean that everyone is a participant. It doesn't mean that everyone's sins are forgiven. It doesn't mean that everyone is a child of God in the family. It doesn't mean that therefore everyone has received his spirit and therefore these promises apply to everyone. It's not what it means. The Bible is clear and this passage is clear through faith. He goes on in verse 6, or verse 7, the proof of your faith. And in verse 9, obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Got a couple minutes here real quick. In the Bible, faith is is always set against works. And works is often, it's the default, it seems to me, for the human Okay, I get it. God is great. Yeah, I could believe that. I'm a sinner, no question. I could believe that. And therefore, what I need to do is I need to work. I need to do better. Tell me the rules and I'll keep them. Show me the ladder and I'll climb it. Set the rings and I'll jump through them. That's the default human response. To God is great and I'm a sinner. I better do better. I better work at it. And maybe, just maybe, my good will outweigh my bad. And at the end, the scales will tip in my favor and then I will receive the inheritance friend, though it is the default of the human heart, it couldn't be any further from the truth. The Bible just doesn't even hint at it. It doesn't go there for a second. That God is great, you're a sinner, therefore you need to work it out. What it proclaims is faith. Not in what you do, but in what he did. See, this is do. Christianity is done. Christ came and lived the holy life you couldn't live. He died upon a cross to pay the penalty for what you've done. God raised him from the dead, stamping his approval upon what he did. And what you and I are called to do is not work, but Trust in His work. Believe in Him. Put your faith in Him. Hope in Him. It's all, we've talked about this at Redeemer before, it's something that we do, we we trust in Him, we put our faith in Him, we hope in Him, but it's completely passive. Because it's, it's resting on everything that He is and everything that He did. Faith, not works. So friend, if you do not have this living hope, and you are not sure that you will one day be a recipient of that incredible inheritance, in the words of the Apostle Paul, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Trust in Jesus. Put your hope in Him. Put your faith in Him. Believe in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever does this and this and this and this and this shall not perish but have eternal life. Is that what it says? No. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, Mitch, what do I do? Do I raise my hand? No. Do I sign a card? No. Do I need to come forward? No. No, 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 no. What do I do? In the quietness of your own heart, you do business with God. You can do it right now. You could wait around. You could go home and, You kneel down by your bed, but you don't even have to kneel down. It's a lifting of your heart and your soul to God. And you just, you talk to Him about it. Your recognition of His holiness and His righteousness and His goodness. And your recognition of your own sin and your own inability to wash your own sins away. Your own inability to earn His favor through your good works and and you just talk to him about that, and then you, you, you talk to him about the gospel, about the good news that he sent Jesus for you, that he died upon the cross to pay for your sins, that God ra- raised him from the dead, and he's alive, and that you want him. You say, God, I want, I want your son. Believe he's your son. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe you raised him from the dead. I believe that he's alive. I don't know what it all means, but I want to trust in him. I don't want to rest in my own good works. I want to rest in his work. I take Christ as my Savior. God, you do business with God. You do business with God. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your great mercy. Your great love, your amazing grace, your kindness towards us. Thank you for sending Jesus, your son, and making him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Lord Jesus, thank you that you willingly came and laid down your life for the sake of your people. God, thank you that you raised him from the dead. Proof positive that he is who he said that he was and he did what he said he was going to do. He's the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And that he's alive right now can change any life right now. We thank you for him. And I pray for my friends here today who maybe have never put their trust in Jesus, that you would be merciful to them today. Help them to see with the eyes of faith your glory, their sin, and Jesus. His life, death, resurrection for them. And that, God, you would so help them to trust in him, to put their faith in him, to hope in him from this day forward. They would become followers of the great king, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we break here and head out these doors, may our hearts be filled with not just joy, but great joy, not just great joy, but joy inexpressible and full of glory. Because of what you've done for us. And we will pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, again, happy Resurrection Day. You are loved. If we can help you in any way. I said, you you just need to do business with God. That's exactly right. But if you'd like to talk more about that, I am here and would love to visit with you but also if we can help you in any other way, please don't hesitate to ask. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful day.